True crime, unsolved cases, strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 1, Butch DeFeo and the Amateurville Murders. Police have been questioning the son, Ronald, and now say he is being, quote, safeguarded. Investigators say without explanation that they now feel young DeFeo was in the house at the time of the murders, but they're not yet considering him a suspect. And so we forth. have no suspect at this time. Is we Ronald... have no indication of the motive at this time. What about Ronald uh, DeFeo, the son, the surviving son? Ronald is being safeguarded by the Suffolk County Police at this time. Why safeguarded? Why? Because the six members of the family dead, and we don't know why, and he's the sole remaining member. The also a suspect? He's not a suspect at this time. That was the voice of the detective in charge of the case, giving the reasoning behind the safeguarding of Ronald DeFeo. Now, on the surface, that's a perfectly valid reason. At that point in time, the police are unaware why the remaining six members of the DeFeo family have all been shot dead in their beds. And in that small window of time the police have had to interview Ronald DeFeo Jr., otherwise known as Butch, he's managed to convince the police that he needs safeguarding himself, implying somebody is out to get the entire family and he's the sole survivor. Not only that, but as you heard there, he is not being treated as a suspect. But there is one small issue about the entire situation, and that is that Butch DeFeo did murder his entire family. But a few questions still remain. First, why did he kill his entire family? And also, did Butch DeFeo act alone? I'm Kev Eustace, and welcome to The Deadly Countdown. Each week, we're going to take a look at some of the cases which have sparked the imagination when it comes to true crime. But also, we will take a look at some of those cases where people have simply just vanished from the face of the earth. And of course, we will also take a deep dive into some of the cases which, to this very day, remain unsolved. For our debut episode, we're looking at the DeFeo murders. Strangely enough, a case which is less famous than the ghost stories which were spawned by the people who moved in following the murders. That in itself shows the power that places like Hollywood can have over the human psyche. It's interesting to think how the ever-rolling money-generating machine which is the Amityville horror series is why everyone in the world knows the name Amityville and associates it with the paranormal and not with the slaying of six innocent victims. Over the course of this series, we will be discussing things such as nature versus nurture when it comes to a murderer. There are well-documented behaviours, especially in childhood, which seem to prove these can be key indicators someone may go on to be a murderer. But the real tragedy is that we're only ever able to gather this evidence and make these comparisons 
after an incident has taken place. And so, what about Butch DeFeo? Were there any clues about who he was to become? Was the ability to murder his entire family always inside him, just waiting to go off? Or was it a series of outside influences, day upon month upon year, which eventually moulded him into the killer that we now know he was? Well, I think it's time to start the deadly countdown. Born on September the 26th, 1951, in Brooklyn, New York, as the oldest of the four children of Ronald and Louise DeFeo, it would seem life had its privileges. Ronald Sr. was a successful car salesman working for his father-in-law's Buick dealership, providing an upper-middle-class lifestyle for his family. But Ronald Sr. was ambitious, and therefore the chance to transition from their cramped living quarters to a grand colonial-style residence in Amityville appeared to be an ideal opportunity, not only to start his ambitious lifestyle, but also to elevate their status within society. And so, Big Ronnie Sr., his wife Louise, Butch and his siblings Dawn, 18, Alison, 13, Mark, 12, and John, 9, made the move to the infamous house, 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville. Or, as most people know it, the house with windows that look like eyes. But ever since moving in to 112 Ocean Avenue, the locals were slightly mystified, puzzled at how Big Ronnie, an ordinary service manager at a car dealership, was able to acquire such an expensive residence located in the affluent Amateurville area of Long Island, an area renowned for its wealth and grandeur. Well, the answer was clear. His father-in-law, Michael Brigante Sr. He was a wealthy and influential man. Why? Well, it's alleged it's because he was a mobster. Brigante had a powerful connection to the underworld. His daughter, Nella, was married to Carmine Galante, one of the most feared leaders of the Bonanno crime family. This notorious outfit was part of the five families that shaped New York City's organised crime, better known as the Mafia, or Cosa Nostra. So let's just say Louise DeFeo was always going to be looked after, both financially and otherwise. To add to the image of success he wanted to convey, Ronnie Sr. decided he wanted a series of life-size portraits created to immortalise his family. Well, they were going to be pricey, but who better to pick up the tab than his father-in-law, Michael Brigante Sr. These portraits were estimated to cost at least $50,000, but with his connections, the money was no object. Painstakingly detailed, the portraits took over a year to complete, and upon their completion, the life-size portraits hung in large golden frames on the staircase wall in between the first and second floors of the DeFeo home. Image was everything. 
but they kind of have the opposite effect. Because it was viewed as almost a case of trying too hard to appear as something you're not. And these portraits became a source of fascination for the locals, who were all curious about the DeFeo family's mysterious and seemingly lavish lifestyle. But, as is often the case, behind closed doors and behind this apparent normalcy was a much darker reality. You see, Ronald Sr. was a controlling and domineering authority figure, who would often engage in heated arguments with both his wife and his children. And the brunt of this abuse was often borne by their eldest child, Butch. Butch, being the firstborn and a male, faced his father's lofty expectations. And Big Ronnie wasn't shy about disciplining his son, often moving from warm embraces to violent outbursts at a frightening speed. Michael Brigante Jr., Louise's brother, mentioned a disturbing occurrence that he witnessed when Butch was only two years old. During the DeFeo trial, he said, We were all sitting down in the basement watching TV, and, I don't know, the boy had done something. And all of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed this boy into the wall. The boy banged his head, or part of his shoulder or something. And so from that court statement, it appears that Ronnie Senior's quick rise to anger was also a quick rise to violence, even to a two-year-old child. As Butch grew, at school, things didn't get any better, as he faced constant ridicule from his classmates. He was overweight and had a brooding demeanour, and as such, he faced continuous ridicule from older children, who would taunt him with cruel nicknames like The Blob or Pork Chop. These experiences undoubtedly took a toll on both his emotional and mental well-being, as the relentless mockery likely made him feel isolated and insecure. The emotional scars left behind by bullying can have long-lasting effects, especially on an individual's psychosocial development and overall happiness. But as time went on, a fire was lit within Butch, and he started to retaliate physically against not only his father, but also his very few friends. Alarmed by their son's ever-spiralling behaviour, the DeFeo sought help from a psychiatrist. But Butch wouldn't accept that he needed help. Consequently, after one visit, Butch never returned to the psychiatrist. Trying a different tack, the DeFeo showered Butch with gifts that were very, very expensive. Things like speedboats, hoping to distract him from his troubles. Unsurprisingly, rarely, this tactic only exacerbated matters, and by age 17, Butch had become entangled in drugs. He experimented with things like LSD, and eventually moved on to much harder and much more expensive drugs, such as heroin. His violent tendencies only escalated further, 
leading to his eventual expulsion from school, and thus Butch faced numerous academic challenges. But the DeFeo family continued to show their support for their son. And at just 18 years old, Butch received a coveted job opportunity at his grandfather's car dealership, with next to no expectations. In addition to this, his father also provided him with a weekly allowance, which means on top of his weekly allowance, he was also paid for a job, irrespective of his work attendance or performance. Clearly, Ronnie Sr. just wanted to make sure that if Butch was ever brought up in conversation, he could proudly say he was working for the family business, when, in truth, he was doing next to nothing and being paid very well for doing so. He was even gifted a new car by his parents. So, where was Butch meant to spend all of this money? Well, alcohol, drugs, and indulging in his newfound hobby, firearms. As time moved on, Butch's behaviour grew increasingly bizarre and concerning. On one occasion, Butch threatened his friend with a rifle during a hunting expedition. And after the incident, he nonchalantly carried on, like nothing had happened. This incident, indeed Butch's attitude to the incident, may be a foreshadowing of the disturbing components which were developing within his character. Butch's seemingly nonchalant attitude continued to escalate, and in another incident, Butch attempted to use a 12-gauge shotgun to kill his own father during a heated disagreement involving his parents. During this familial disagreement, Butch stood, put the 12-gauge shotgun to his father's head and pulled the trigger at point-blank range. He fully expected the weapon to discharge. But adding a layer of oddness is that despite the gun being fired at point-blank range, the 12-gauge shotgun inexplicably malfunctioned, thereby averting, or should that be delaying, a tragic outcome. This familial disagreement came to a quick end as you could imagine, as Ronnie Sr. quickly apologised and backed down. But no one present, except maybe for Butch, knew that this was just a foreshadowing of the tragic events yet to come. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pretty soon, Butch's character, mannerisms, and behaviors began to change. Around this time, Butch would imply to friends that there was something in the house. He'd hear bangs... Sounds he claimed were unexplainable. He said he'd see things darting out of the corner of his eye, or COTEP, corner of the eye phenomena, as the paranormal community referred to it. And although that's often held up as evidence that something evil resides within the house, we need to remember we're also talking about someone with a clear personality disorder who is also addicted to drugs. And although Butch seemed to have an endless financial resource, addiction will find a way to burn itself through your money. And so, frustrated by his seemingly inadequate earnings, Butch devised a plan to embezzle funds from the car dealership that he worked for. Late one October, Ronnie Sr. decided that Butch needed some responsibility. So, to test him he gave him the rather simple task of depositing money at the bank. However, this was over $20,000. Once he was informed he would be given the task, ever a schemer, Butch began formulating a plan that involved a stage robbery with a friend and they would split the cash evenly. So that's what they'd done. And it seemed like a solid strategy. And for a time it was until the police arrived at the Buick dealership to interview Butch. Now faced with questions from the police, Butch's demeanour shifted dramatically, turning aggressive and angry. Seeing his reaction and sensing he was lying, the officers requested Butch accompany them to the police station so he could examine the mugshots of possible culprits. Unsurprisingly, he declined their offer. Having no more than a gut feeling about the situation, the police had no alternative but to accept this and walk away. In the days following, Butch's behaviour became increasingly erratic, leaving those around him on edge. But an elephant this big couldn't just stay in the room. And as suspicions grew and tensions mounted, Ronnie Sr., Butch's father confronted Butch about his uncooperative behaviour towards the police. Defiant against the looming accusation and perhaps feeling cornered, Butch, there and then, shockingly, threatened to take his father's life. Ronnie Sr. was stunned into silence as Butch stormed out of the room. Ronnie Sr. slumped back in his chair head in hands, and took a deep breath, before leaning forward and letting out a deep sigh while shaking his head. After all, this was his fourth or fifth death threat from Butch. 
But then we reached the very early hours of the 13th of November, 1974, and Butch DeFeo made good on his menacing threat. Armed with a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his concealed weapon collection, he stealthily entered his parents' bedroom, shooting them both twice in the back as they lay asleep. He proceeded to invade his brother's room, shooting them as they slept in their beds. Finally, he went for his sisters, taking their lives at point-blank range in their respective bedrooms. The entire grisly act of familicide took place within a mere 15-minute window. After the massacre, Butch took a shower and changed into his work clothes, gathered his blood-stained attire and the murder weapon and placed it inside a pillowcase. He disposed of these damning pieces of evidence in a storm drain en route to his work, arriving at the dealership around 6am. Something in itself surprising having never been the first to arrive before. And from the moment Butch showed up at work, he made call after call to his home, feigning confusion to anyone who would listen that no one was picking up, and also acting concerned that his father hadn't arrived for work. Time and time again, he would go into the office, pick up the phone and then leave the office and proclaim he was so confused as to why no one was answering. Once he was convinced he'd told as many people as he could of his concerns, he announced he was bored and left to meet his pals. From when he left, Butch attempted to create an alibi by claiming to everyone he spoke to that he couldn't reach anyone at his home. Around 6.30 that evening... Butch burst into his local bar, Henry's Bar, and cried out for help. He dropped to his knees and claimed he'd went home and found his parents had been shot. Well, a handful of concerned individuals, including DeFeo's friend Joe Yeswit, accompanied him back to the house, not far from the bar. And upon their arrival, they discovered the horrifying truth. DeFeo's parents were laying lifeless inside their bedroom. Unsure what to do next, Joe Yeswit found a phone in the kitchen and called the police. At around 6.40pm, local beat cop Kenneth Groguski of the Amateurville Village Police got the call to go to 112 Ocean Avenue, where there'd been a report of a shooting. He was met in the driveway by a very emotional butch, who claimed both his parents lay murdered inside the house. Officer Groguski went inside the residence and found the actual truth. Every single member of the DeFeo family, save for Butch, had been murdered. Officer Groguski actually consoled Butch DeFeo as they awaited for the homicide detectives to arrive. On their arrival a homicide detective from Suffolk County named Detective Gozolov asked DeFeo who he thought could be a suspect in the murder of his whole family. He told them he believed it was a mafia hitman named Louis Fellini. 
Butch cited an old grudge between the Fellini and the DeFeo family over some work Butch done for him at the dealership. He then told police he'd been up late watching TV and, unable to sleep, he left for work early. He said he believed his family was still alive when he left for work. He then told them of his whereabouts for the rest of the day. So, with initial questions out of the way and seemingly a mafia hitman out to get the DeFeos, police placed Butch in protective custody whilst they searched for a suspect. Interestingly, or rather tellingly, one of the few questions Butch did ask the police was in regards to how he could begin the process of getting any inheritance that he would be due from his parents. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine how far down the list such a question would be if this was me in that situation. The forensic team discovered the family had been murdered with a 35 caliber Marlin gun, and although the police both gave DeFeo protection and gave some credence to his alibi, after a more thorough search of the DeFeo house, Butch's testimony began to crumble. They found an empty box for a recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin gun in Butch's room. As the timeline came together, it became more realistic that the murders happened early in the morning. The family had all been wearing their pyjamas, so it couldn't have happened earlier in the day. This placed Butch at home at the time of the homicides. The very next day, while still under protection, it was revealed that the alleged hitman Fellini had a solid alibi. He was out of state at the time of the killings. Completely out of options, Butch admitted committing the acts himself. He chillingly informed detectives, Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. He then divulged that he'd bathed, changed clothes, and discarded essential pieces of evidence, including the blood-soaked garment and the murder weapon, before arriving at work like it was another ordinary day. After a lengthy trial that concluded right before Thanksgiving... Justice Thomas Stark described the crimes as the most heinous and abhorrent he'd ever seen. And on December the 4th, 1975, he delivered his verdict. Ronald DeFeo Jr., otherwise known as Butch, was given six sentences of 25 years to life. But despite the official claim that Butch acted alone... Whispers of a hidden truth lingered in the shadows. Enter Herman Race, a seasoned former New York City supervising police detective, tasked by Michael Brigante Sr. to investigate the murders. Race embarked on a relentless pursuit of the truth. Brigante, convinced that his grandson was not solely responsible sought solace in Racis's expertise to either validate or disprove the case against Butch. 
During this relentless pursuit, Race unearthed a shocking revelation. Evidence seemed to suggest the involvement of multiple gunmen and the use of at least two firearms during the heinous act. Astonishingly, Race's findings were never dismissed, but in fact corroborated by both the prosecutor and the medical examiner themselves. The aura of doubt surrounding this case, once dismissed as a closed chapter of horror, now blooms with the grim possibility of a hidden conspiracy. At first, the defence team argued that Butcher's plea of insanity was due to the influence of voices. However, Butcher's version of events quickly changed, revealing a devastating description of the events. He confessed to a heinous crime, committed out of desperation, involving not only himself, but also his sister Dawn, and one of their friends. This apparent revelation was confirmed in a letter written by DeFeo himself. In his own words, he admitted, It was cold-blooded murder, period. No ghosts, no demons just three people, of whom I was one. Apparently weary from the years of physical, mental and emotional trauma, Dawn approached her brother Butch about killing their parents. Butch was initially resistant, but eventually agreed. And under the influence of drugs and alcohol, the two of them enlisted the help of two of their friends and went upstairs to their parents' bedroom. This was November the 13th, 1974, around 1am. As one friend waited outside, Dawn, Butch, and the other friend broke into the bedroom and started stabbing their parents. Dawn's actions were fueled by a desperate need for freedom and a desire to escape her father's clutches. But Dawn apparently wanted no witnesses to the crime, and went and murdered her younger siblings without Butch's knowledge. We find Butch returning home, livid at the senseless killing that had took place. He stormed into Dawn's bedroom on the third floor, where they engage in a brief struggle for the gun. As fate would have it, Butch gained control and forcefully pushes Dawn against the bed, knocking her unconscious. It's in this vulnerable state, with Dawn lying motionless on her bed, that Butch places the barrel of the rifle against her head and pulls the trigger. With this final act of violence, the dreaded killing spree comes to an end. Well, according to Butch. However, if Butch DeFeo is one thing, it would be an unreliable narrator. In a 1986 interview, Butch now claimed that Dawn did kill her father, and this led to her mother finding the dead body. Now, a grief-stricken Louise ends up losing her mind and murdering all of Ronald's siblings. Eventually, Ronald ends up killing his mother in self-defence. During the interview... 
He explains he accepted the blame due to fear of speaking ill about his mother in front of her father, Michael Brigante Sr., as well as his own father's uncle, mainly because his father's uncle, Pete DeFeo, held a significant position in the Genovese crime family. Butch also revealed some interesting personal details during this interview. He claimed he was married to a woman named Geraldine at the time and was living with her in New Jersey. According to him, his mother had called asking for help as she wanted him to intervene in an altercation between Dawn and their father. So he proceeded to drive back to Amityville accompanied by Geraldine's brother, Richard Ramondo. Interestingly enough, Ronald insists that Richard Ramondo was present during the killings and can verify this entire story, adding yet another layer of complexity and speculation. But tall tales aside, there are some genuine mysteries around this slaughter. For example, the six victims were discovered laying face down in their beds, no indication of any struggle taking place. DeFeo had used an unsilenced rifle to fire multiple rounds into his unsuspecting family. And despite the fact he claimed he drugged his family so they didn't hear the shots prior to the massacre, both polygraph tests and autopsy reports discredited that story. Toxology reports further confirmed that none of the victims had any trace of sedatives in their system. What does make this case slightly eerie is that the neighbours claimed they didn't hear a single gunshot that night. The only sound they heard was the family dog barking. Now, contrary to what you see in the films, the houses are located just a few feet apart. Given that the rifle used had considerable firepower, it's baffling that not a single resident heard the gunshot in the vicinity. Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise DeFeo were shot twice, whilst their four children, Alison, Dawn, John and Mark Matthew, each received one fatal shot. Now, a former Scotland Yard ballistic expert said the rifle used was for deer or black bear hunting. It fires 200 grains with a velocity of 2100 feet per second and a kinetic energy of about 1970 pounds per foot. He continues, This is an extremely noisy combination and if fired within a house would result in possible hearing loss for anyone in close proximity. Even with a silencer fitted, which it wasn't, the noise of the bullet breaking the sound barrier would still be extremely noisy. Much louder, for example, than the sound of a car backfiring. Yet, the neighbours from houses which were mere feet away report hearing nothing but the dog bark around 3am. This part is kind of eerie. How do you not hear repeated gunshots? Gunshots from such a powerful weapon in the dead of night. But you do hear a dog barking. 
Couple that with other eerie parts of this tragedy, the six family members all found in identical positions, laying face down on their beds, none attempting to move or call out to each other, and who knows? Maybe, maybe there was something paranormal going on within the house. But probably the most intriguing conspiracy in the whole affair is based around DeFeo's insistence, albeit varying and contradictory accounts, that Dawn played some part. Because, you see, it appears that Dawn may have been involved in the murders. As forensic evidence shown, she had traces of what's called backfire gunpowder residue on her nightgown. Basically, only found on someone who's used a firearm. However, content that they had a confession and a conviction, the police refused to investigate that lead further, despite the fact that Dawn had recently argued with her parents over her intention to move to Florida with her boyfriend, William Davidge. William himself also informed police that Dawn was prone to outbursts and had drug and alcohol issues. So I ask you, is it so hard to imagine that these two unstable siblings crafted a plan to kill their family and divide the inheritance? Only for Butch to maybe go back on his word, kill Dawn and take all the money for himself. Having two shooters would even explain how the ordeal was over in just 15 minutes, with no one having a chance to react. Even the prosecutor, Gerard Sullivan, admitted he suspected Butch had an accomplice. But I guess we'll never truly know, because Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. died behind bars on March the 12th, 2021 at the age of 69, taking the truth with him to the grave. Well, that concludes the debut episode of The Deadly Countdown, and I hope you enjoyed it. For me, it proves that real life can be much more unbelievable and much more terrifying than anything Hollywood could produce. I'd like to thank you all for choosing to spend your time with me here on this show. On episode two, we will cover one of the most horrific murders ever seen in the UK. Michael Taylor, the demoniac. Any audio used in today's show is protected under fair use and referenced in the notes of the podcast. So, until episode two, when we hear about Michael Taylor, let's stop the clock. <laughs>